had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than hearts could wish for. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction, or how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is no one upon earth that I, decide, that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on your word now, that you would speak to us, that you would uh, speak to those of us who are disillusioned uh, and also train those of us who aren't, Lord, to deal with disillusionment both in ourselves and also in others. Lord, help us to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we in the West uh, live in an age of profound and I think sometimes crippling disillusionment. Uh, that is in part, I think, due to the fact that our society overpromises and underdelivers on those promises. Uh, it promises that if you try hard enough, you'll succeed in whatever you want to do. You, know, you can be whatever you want to be. Which sounds great uh, until you fail and then uh, you feel like a complete failure and you, you, you can't make sense of your life. 
you're left feeling uh, disillusioned. In politics too, disillusionment is rife, both here and overseas. Uh, the EU overpromised and underdelivered, and it resulted in uh, the Brexit and an almost Grexit. Uh, Greek almost left the euro a couple of years ago, and a number of European countries are struggling to finance uh, themselves and to deal with the lack of economic control. Uh, locally, after our most recent federal election, a contrite Malcolm Turnbull acknowledged there is no doubt there is a level of disillusionment with politics, with government and with the major parties. So disillusionment is everywhere. It's everywhere in our society. But what do we do as Christians when we're disillusioned with God? We might be able to survive disillusionment with our life prospects. We might have a great goal for what we're going to do in life and that doesn't come off and we become disillusioned. We might be able to survive that. But what do we do when we're disillusioned with God? How do we survive that? Unfortunately, the way many people deal with that is by leaving God behind. Uh, I was at a party recently speaking to a guy who was post-church and post-Christian. He'd uh, been in the church as an adult. He'd worked for a Christian non-profit organisation. But he had become disillusioned because of his experience, regrettably, of other Christians. And that disillusionment had disillusioned him uh, with God. We've been looking over the last few weeks at uh, the causes of what we've called the dark night of the soul, the causes of sadness and distress in the Christian life. And this morning, the uh, cause of sadness that we're looking at is disillusionment. What do you do when you become disillusioned with God? Disillusionment may not seem like a dark night of the soul. Uh, it may not seem like a, you know, this dark night of the soul like grief or despair or, or something like that. But as you read this psalm, you discover that disillusionment can be a cause for that. The writer talks about being oppressed in coming to terms with the gulf between what he experiences in life and what he understands about God. Uh, He talks about being grieved and embittered. Disillusionment often leads to confusion. We're plagued by the question, What should I do about this situation? Uh, It can lead to despair. We ask, how can I go on? And it can also lead to guilt and shame when we think, how can I be a Christian and ask these kinds of questions? How can I be a Christian and be disillusioned with God? Well, what Psalm 73 does is to help us wrestle openly and honestly with disillusionment in the Christian life and it helps us to wrestle through it, if you like, to work through disillusionment and to come out the other side trusting in God and uh, being satisfied in God. Well, in verses 1 to 15 of Psalm 73, the writer Asaph lays out his disillusionment problem. He says that the problem started when he became envious of other people. Verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When he says that he envied the arrogant, what he means is essentially he envied those who don't trust God. The arrogant are arrogant because they trust themselves 
uh, rather than trusting God, and they live for themselves rather than living for God. They don't think that they need God, and so they make their way in life without God. And Asaph says that he looked at those people and he began to envy them. Uh, Quite literally, he says that he envied them because of their peace. He saw that their lives were easy and pleasant and rich, full of, of good things. And he goes on to show what it, what, what it was in particular, I suppose, that made him envy them. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Uh, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Even though these people pay no attention to God, they're still healthy and strong. They don't even seem to suffer the kinds of problems that normal people do. God promises peace, but these people who don't even know God, don't even want to have anything to do with God, they're the ones who have peace. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. They close themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. These people are making no attempt to be decent people or to follow God. They're living for themselves, and yet they prosper. They're proud, they're violent, they're callous, they're evil, they're malicious, they're oppressive, and yet they succeed. Verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? They reject God, but at the same time they lay claim to the world that God has made. This is our world, they say, not God's world. This is my life, not God's life. I make my own decisions I don't listen to what anybody else uh, has to say. I don't submit to anyone. And everyone else around them drinks up their wisdom. Oh, yes, everyone else says, that that looks good, that sounds good, that's what I'll do. I'll follow what they're doing. They speak out against God and they say, what does God know? What's he going uh, going to do to me? These people, uh, please notice, are not atheists. They aren't people who stop believing in God. These are people who still think God exists, who still pay lip service to God, but whose lives are completely disconnected from God. There's not a relationship with God which grounds every day their lives in the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. They just talk about God and then do their own thing. What does God know? He's never, going to see, he's never going to see how I'm living. He's, he's never going to realise that I don't care about him. How's he going to stop me? And nothing seems to happen to these people who live like that. Again, all that seems to happen is that they succeed. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Asaph is not saying here that everybody who, that every person who uh, doesn't know God or rejects God is is as bad or as 
evil or as noticeably evil as, as this, as these people here in this psalm. What he's saying is, if even the worst people who are like this succeed in life, then what's the point of following God? He's stating, he's stating the argument in the, in, the, in the strongest possible form. If these people completely disregard God and are still succeeding, then why am I beating myself up to follow God? It doesn't make sense. What's the point? Verse 13, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. What's the point? What's the point of trusting God? What's the point of giving your life to God? What's the point of leaving sin and clinging to Christ? What's the point when the people who reject God prosper? What's the point when I'm following God? What's the point of following God when that's what I'm doing and yet I'm being punished every day, says the psalmist, when I'm living my life in distress and agony and sadness? What's the point of that? He rightly says that to say that out loud would have been to betray God. (laughs) And yet he writes the psalm. You can't deny the force of his dilemma. What's the point of turning from sin and asking God for forgiveness through the death of Jesus when others don't and their lives are going along just fine? What's the point? What's the point of straining and fighting to follow Christ when that ends in misery? And when pride and arrogance seems to lead to a good life. How many people can you think of in life who are not nice people? Who are ruthless businessmen. And they've got millions and millions of dollars. What's the point of following God? If you can can be like that and, and succeed. What's the point of taking up your cross and following Jesus when all that does is lead to pain? And when ignoring Jesus seems to lead to a pleasant life. Why get up early on Sunday morning to go to church to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for us when others don't do that and their lives seem to be travelling along okay? Why give money to missions and to the spreading of the gospel when others don't and they get to spend their money on overseas holidays and redoing the bathroom? Why love people that Jesus calls us to love when they're hard to love and costly to love? Why bother? When it's much easier to forget about loving those people just to love ourselves and we can still win. When you do the sums, when you compare the success of Christians with the success of people who completely ignore God, Asaph says there doesn't seem to be any point. There seems to be no point in following God. There seems to be no advantage. So what do we do? That's Asaph's dilemma. That's his disillusionment. Well, Asaph eventually discovers in the second half of this psalm that his disillusionment is ill-founded. In the midst of his disillusionment, he suddenly gets perspective on life which helps him to understand what's really going on. And that new perspective drags him out of where he is 
and drags him out of envying those people who reject God and ignore God. He says in verse 16, When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. At first, understanding what's going on is oppressive, but then he steps into the temple and everything becomes clear. The temple, you see, was a kind of big fat promise from God of something much better than just a stone building. The temple was a house. It was uh, actually a kind of a palace. It was a house designed to look like a garden. It was designed to look like the garden, like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve lived, where they walked with God and knew God. It was a tiny glimpse, this temple, of the hope that one day, again, people would live with God and walk with God and know God. It was a pale imitation of the way that the world was supposed to be. Meeting in God's house. But God's house isn't a building, you see. God's house is the entire universe. And the great hope is living with God in a renewed world. And as Asaph came into the temple, that's what he began to understand. It's in the light of that that he understands that measuring the profitability of faithfulness by what happens today, by what happens now, by the short term, measuring profitability of following God by that is foolish, it's folly, it's stupidity. Lots of things are like that, aren't they? Lots of things require us to take the long-term view. And if we don't take the long-term view, we actually completely misunderstand the world and our circumstances. If we don't take the long-term view, we're entirely likely to choose a bad option rather than the best option. Economists always say that kind of thing about the stock market, don't they? Or, Or financial planners. When people see the market fall... They panic and they want to sell out. But economists often say, don't sell, don't do it. Hang on, the market's going to turn around. Everything will come good again. It's about thinking about the long-term view. Going to school or university or TAFE or getting some kind of education is like that. You sit in class and you think to yourself, what on earth am I doing here? This seems like a complete waste of time. This appears to have no relevance to anything that I'm doing. And yet, 5, 10, 15 years down the track, you begin to realise that what people were teaching you actually had a purpose. That people were uh, giving you a better future uh, and greater wisdom about the world. In the same way, we can look on at the success of other people who don't know Jesus and we can panic Like those people looking at the stock market, we look at what's going on in the lives of other people and we think, well, it's working for them, perhaps I'll sell out on God and I'll do what they're doing. But Asaph says we need not to panic, but to think about the long-term view. And so as he steps into the temple, as he thinks about the world that God has promised, the world that God is remaking to be as it was intended to be, he sees these two possible futures. The first future that he sees is unpacked in verses 18 to 20. 
He says, Surely you place them on a slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The first future that Asaph sees is a terrible future. It's the future of those who reject God. Although they might prosper now, Asaph realises, ultimately they're on slippery ground. They can fall at any moment from their profitable lives into ruin. That's because one day their lives and all that they own and everything that they have made themselves to be will disappear and they will stand before God empty-handed. They'll stand before the God that they've rejected with nothing except the history of the way that they've treated God and ignored God and rejected God. Their lives are swept away suddenly, he says. We love, don't we, early warning detection systems. Uh, We build early warning detection systems to be warned early about every possible calamity that we can possibly imagine. We love to know what's coming so that we can prepare ourselves, so that we can escape. But Asaph says that those who don't trust God are utterly unprepared for what they'll face. They'll face the God of heaven and earth that they've rejected. They'll face the Jesus that they've treated with contempt or, or indifference. And they'll be completely unprepared for that. Their lives are like dreams. They seem so real. It seems like everything's going so well. And the next moment you're awake. It was just a fantasy. And you try to get back what you've lost. You try to go back to that imaginary world where things were better. But you can't get it back. It's gone. Asaph realises a key truth about the future, which is if you reject God in this life, God will reject you in the next. If you're not trusting and following Jesus, I want you to imagine for a moment what it will be like to stand before God. What will it be like for you to stand before God, having lived a life of not trusting in Christ, not paying attention to Christ. If you don't believe in God or uh, if you just give lip service to God, you just turn up to church, but your heart doesn't belong to God, imagine what it would be like to stand before God on that day. Having lived like that, what will it be like to meet God? Well, I suppose it will be like meeting someone else, anyone else who you've treated like that? Anyone else who you've hated, what would it be like to meet them? Or to meet someone who you've treated with indifference, someone that you've ignored, someone who's lived their life pouring themselves out for you and you've just walked all over them? What what would it be like to meet someone like that? That's what it would be like to meet a God who's poured himself out for us in the death of his own son, and yet we've completely trampled over him our whole lives.
One day you'll go to bed rich and you'll wake up standing before God with nothing. One day you'll go to bed with a wonderful reputation uh, as a great intellect or a great craftsperson or a great business person and one day you'll wake up with nothing. You'll stand before God and he'll say, you spent a lifetime rejecting me, despising me, mocking me, ignoring me, pretending that you love me but loving everything else but me. Why should I now suddenly welcome you into into my house, into my world? He'll say those terrible words that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Away from me. I never knew you. If you're disillusioned with following God like Asaph was disillusioned, then possible future number one, I think, is a great encouragement, a great reason to persevere in trusting God. Things might look greener on the other side of the fence, but think about what the future holds without God. If you turn away from God, uh, as Jesus says, you might gain the world, but you'll forfeit your soul. So the first reason that Asaph gives then for persevering with God is that without God, although it might seem good, although life might seem good, ultimately things end up badly. The second possible future is found in verses uh, 23 to 28. Asaph says there, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. If you like, future number one, which we just looked at, shows the negative side of a life without God. Future number two shows the positive side of a life with God. In comparison to those who are perched on that slippery slope, uh, whose lives are like a dream which disappears... In comparison to that, God holds Asaph's right hand. God guides him by his counsel through all the difficult and treacherous paths of life. And after all the pain and after all the befuddlement uh, and difficulty of life, God will take him into glory. God will bring him into his presence and God will remake him, as the New Testament says, into the image of his majestic son, Jesus Christ. And as Asaph knows, there is nothing better than knowing God. Peace in this world, a pleasant life, uh, being able to do what you want, getting what you want, going where you want, when you want, none of those things actually hold out any promise. They all look like they're really good, but actually once you get them, you sort of realise that they're empty. They're nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and being found in him. Nothing else holds any hope apart from the promise of eternity with God. 
What is there in heaven to hope for but that, but God? And actually, Asaph says, what is there even on earth that's worth having besides that? As he, as he looks to eternity, it actually gives him perspective on, on his present circumstances. He doesn't just go, well, one day things will be good. He actually begins to discover that things are already good now because he knows that God who, whom he's going to meet. All the treasures of the world pale into insignificance compared to that. They pale into insignificance compared to the greatness of knowing God. Not just in the end, but knowing God today, knowing God now. There's nothing on earth as rich, as delightful, as full of goodness, as overflowing with satisfaction. There's nothing that reaches down into our hearts so profoundly and fills us and satisfies us and gives us what we so deeply long for and desire as knowing God. Our body may fail, and one day it will. Our heart may fail, and one day it will stop beating. But if we know God, it doesn't matter. He's the strength of our heart and our portion forever. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. We can lose everything as long as we still have God. We can fall to pieces, but God is always enough. We can stumble through tragedy, but sharing in the resurrection and power of Jesus shines joy even into the darkest nights of our soul. We can lose everything and ultimately lose nothing. We can lose the world, but gain another one. Asaph looked at the people who rejected God and ignored God, and he thought that they were succeeding. But it turns out they weren't. It turns out that what they had was nothing. They were grasping at sand. And whatever they had was falling through their fingers. They had nothing, not only in the next life, but they didn't even have anything in this life that was worth hanging on to. Those people who are far from God will perish, but those who trust in God, God will protect and bring into his glory. C.S. Lewis writes of the two, those two possible futures uh, in his uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, he says, we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged, we walk every day on the razor edge between two incredible possibilities. Apparently then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, 
to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honour beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. If you're disillusioned with following God like Asaph was, possible future number two gives you reasons for persevering with God, for continuing on, for labouring through the difficulties. The second reason that Asaph gives for us to stick with God is that if we stick with God, we will know God and enter into his glory. But this psalm says one last thing for those who are suffering with disillusionment. The first words of this psalm set up another dilemma, I think. Verse 1 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. And later in verse 21, Asaph says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What he's saying is, surely God is good to the pure in heart, but as for me, as for me, I was ignorant. I was stupid. I was a fool. I almost slipped because I began to think think that following God was a waste of time. God is good to the pure in heart, but as for me, I was an idiot. And yet, remarkably, it's at that very time that God holds Asaph by his right hand. He was ignorant and stupid, but God was compassionate and gracious. He was a brute beast and a fool, and God held him by the right hand and walked beside him. Even in the darkest times, even in his ignorance, even in his disillusionment, even as he was tempted to give up, God was there. God was walking beside him. God was bringing him into glory. This psalm reminds us that the pure in heart are not those who are free from doubts or those whose hearts are infallible, but it's those who rest in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, those who make God their refuge. It's those who say, life is falling apart. I don't understand what's going on, God. I don't understand how this works. But I trust you. I've got nothing else to hang on to. But I trust in you. I trust that Jesus is the saviour of the world. And I trust that he's my saviour. I trust that he'll rescue me from sin, from death, from judgment. He'll rescue me from anything that I need to be rescued from. I trust that he'll save me from my own wandering heart. Well, it can be deeply unsettling to end up in the place that Asaph was in. You look around at the world and you wonder what the point of going on in the Christian life really is. What's the point of following God? And that's a scary place to be, I think. 
Because we begin to ask ourselves, who, who am I? If those are the thoughts that come to me, who am I? Am I a hypocrite? How can I be a Christian if I think like that? You feel like Asaph, a brute beast. You say to yourself, God will never take me back. If I've been thinking those kinds of thoughts, he'll never, he'll never take me back. In fact, you may not have just thought that. You may not have just thought about, maybe I should turn away from God. Maybe that's more worthwhile. You may have actually turned away from him. You may have actually done it. If that's you or if that's how you feel, then I hope Asaph's words and Asaph's experience are an encouragement. I hope they're an encouragement not to despair, but to keep trusting God, or if you've turned away, to turn back to God. I hope they're an encouragement to trust in his forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I hope they're an encouragement that even in the dark night of disillusionment, if we belong to Jesus, God holds us by our right hand. I hope it's an encouragement that even in hypocrisy and ignorance, those things aren't obstacles to continuing to hold on to Jesus Christ. This psalm is a reminder that our hope is not our perfect record. Our hope is not always thinking the best thoughts of God. Our hope is that when we come to an end of ourselves we can still fling ourselves onto the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. When we have no strength left to go on, Jesus carries us into the saving arms of our Heavenly Father. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to confess, uh, all of us, that at one time or another, these thoughts have crossed our minds. Lord, for some of us, it has been uh, more probing, uh, a more difficult dilemma. But all of us have looked around and wondered whether what we're doing is really worth the effort. We've all wondered whether following Christ and trusting Christ is all that it's cracked up to be. Lord, we might suffer in our own lives. We might put our faith in you and yet life is difficult and we wonder why it's difficult. We wonder whether it's easy just to to give up and to make hay while the sun shines. But Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for that. Forgive us for underestimating your glory. Forgive us for underestimating your love and your mercy and all that you've done and pouring yourself out for us to rescue us from our sin and our rebellion against you and sending your own son into our world 
as one of us to redeem us and save us and to bring us back to you. Lord, forgive us that we could ever think that it was a waste of time to know you or a waste of time to speak with you or a waste of time to hear you speak to us in your word or a waste of time to to live for you or a waste of time to praise you. Forgive us that we could ever think that and open our eyes to see the things that Asaph saw, to see the end of those who don't know you as a spur to continue on in trusting you and help us to see the glory for which we're destined. Help us to see that though our flesh and our heart may fail, that you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And that though we might perish, you hold us by our right hand and afterwards will bring us into glory. Oh God, open up the eyes of our hearts to see the glory for which we are destined in Jesus Christ. And may that encourage us and spur us on to persevere in the faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.